Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. (laughs) That's right. That's good enough. (laughs) Oh boy. Let's dive in. Today we have Earl Gibson. He has gotten kicked off of LinkedIn and Twitter for his political views. He did autopsies at 9-11. He's a real estate mogul and he's no stranger to controversy. He speaks his mind no matter what people think. Earl, welcome. Tell me your thoughts about Fauci. I think he's a conniving little prick and a liar. What do you think his motives were? Power, money. He's been around for a long time and Few people know that, you know, he had went with Gates to open up the lab and he got funding from Obama to study the Wuhan virus. So I think it's all too convenient. It was like a year or two years before the whole virus came out. He was talking about pandemic happening and, you know, was a little bit too specific for something being a surprise. So I would say that's a controversial view, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, it's whatever. What do you think about Kenosha? I mean, I could care less he got shot. That was his fault. He wasn't supposed to be there. He should have been in jail anyway. There was a warrant out for his arrest, meaning he should have been in jail. And then he goes and shows up at the same house of the woman that that he beat up and raped and then steals her keys and tries to get into the car with the kids in there. The police tried everything they could to, you know, arrest him. He fought and he got shot. And even up until the part where he got shot in the car, you can see that the cop didn't want to shoot him. He was still pulling on his shirt. I mean, he could have easily just stepped back and just blown him away if he's reaching in the car. But he still tried to pull him out the car, and he got shot seven times in the back. Me personally, I think it should have been a head shot ended because we don't need people like him around. But now his victim gets to sit back and watch him spend, the, what is it, $2 million that he has in the GoFundMe. Meanwhile, she's not getting any kind of justice from, you know, this, this dickhead. But, you know, of course, in the, in the black community, he's going to be a hero. That's how things work in 2020, I guess. I believe you had a similar opinion with George Floyd, right? Yeah, I've seen the arrest video, 33 minutes of it. And that dude was high off his mind, you know, and he resisted the cops all the way up until he stopped breathing because of the drugs in the system. You know, it had nothing to do with the guy having a a knee on his neck, which is during that time in Minneapolis specifically was not illegal. He did, you know, what was common when dealing with druggies. And me, I've done security before, and I know how it is when people are high and how strong they are. People don't realize that. I remember a situation where it was me and there were three other security officers, and I was the smallest one. And I'm 5'10", 250. The guy that we were trying to detain. He was maybe like 5'4", maybe like 140 pounds. And he flipped me because he was high on crack. Oh my God. Yeah, he flipped me. And it took all four of us to pin him down. I thought that I can handle myself. I was like, yeah, you know, I got him, I got him. And then he flipped me. I can't even imagine somebody George Floyd size, you know, fighting with the police. And I mean, he fought with them. But it's convenient that the video only shows from one angle, and it shows at the point when he's already on the ground pinned down. But it doesn't show him kicking. It doesn't show them restraining, which is, you know, all the stuff that I saw in the video. 
And he was complaining about his breathing from the get-go, from, from the start. He died from drugs in the system. You know, that's the only reason why he died. What do you think of the backlash? I think it's ridiculous. They play on people's emotions, and they have. They do it every four years. It happens every four years. Something happens, and they, they play on the emotions of black people because we're overly emotional, and we don't like listening to facts. It's, it's easier to blame somebody. It's easier not to take responsibility for things. From conversations I have, I have yet to hear people take accountability for these people resisting arrest and fighting with police officers. It's not a racist thing, it's a policing thing. Yeah, there's some issues within the police forces, there's issues within the structure, but there's not a system. I don't believe that there's a system of, of oppression, a system of racism. I think that there's structural things that need changes. And I think that if we change the people within the structure, I think the system will change itself. What kind of changes do you think should be made? At the leadership levels. They've had the same leadership for for decades. And then they wonder what the problem is. When did you start studying the facts? Because you seem to know them. Most Black people have conservative beliefs anyway. But on my journey to realizing that I am conservative, you know, it just came about as looking at policies under Trump. I didn't vote for Trump at all. You know, I thought he was... Everything that the media was saying, I thought he was racist, misogynist, xenophobic, everything that they were saying, I thought I thought he was stupid, you know, everything. And then I started looking at policies and I was like, now I started asking myself, why are they trying so hard to get me not to like this man? If I'm not going to like somebody, if you're telling me, hey, you shouldn't like him, I, well, why? Why shouldn't I like him? That doesn't make any sense. Why are you telling me not to like him? Oh, because he's racist. Okay, what, what did he do that was racist? He said that there were good people on both sides. Show me. I listened to this, the speech and I'm like, he called out racist. Like the very first thing he said was, we don't condone that. Have you attended any protests? No, nah, I'm not doing that. So it's funny because I got some buddies who were, who were members of the, uh, the Texas militia. And uh, we got word that they were coming down. So they came down from Dallas and then they went to Austin, 45 minutes from here. So Austin, they had like three days of peaceful protests and stuff like that. And then those people showed up and all chaos broke loose. We had got word that they were coming here to San Antonio. So I didn't attend the protests or the marches or anything like that. Do you own a gun? I do. Several. <laughs> what are your thoughts around guns? I love them. Over time, it's become more of a hobby of mine. It's at a point where it's almost a must-have for protection and things like that. Tell me about your time in the military. I joined the military right out of high school. So I was 16 when I graduated. I turned 17 that summer. And by the fall, I was back here in San Antonio, basic training. I had a guaranteed job going in. My job was pathology and mortuary sciences. My tech school was actually in DC. So it's coming up on the anniversary of 9-11. During 9-11, I was actually in a Pentagon during 9-11. So uh, that happened. What they did, because I was at Walter Reed at the time, they took us, and keep in mind, I'm still in school, learning how to do the job and everything like that. They sent us up to Dover. We were on the intake team for all the bodies that were coming from the Pentagon and from Pennsylvania. So did the autopsy on those. I think we had like a 99.98% positive identification rate from all the people from the Pentagon, the Pennsylvania flight, as well as the, uh, the hijackers. So I did that. Something I've been living with since you know, 2001. Part of the reason why I'm 100% through the VA. Yeah, I still see those faces and everything like that. September is really a, it's kind of a tough month 
for me, usually I'm kind of a recluse at this time. Over time, you know, having a family and stuff like that, it kind of brings me out of my shell. So uh, I've come a long way. But yeah, I served that, you know, second generation Air Force. I uh, got out in 2008 and, you know, I've been here in San Antonio since then. I'm still in shock. You just like <laughs> glazed over the fact that you were there during 9-11. That's insane. What was that like? During that time, you know, having that experience and at the time I was 18. So I was the youngest person there, period. I'm leading my own team. We had a team of six people. Uh, during autopsies. One person was taking the, the clothing off, one person was going through the wallet and taking out the belongings and stuff like that. And then another person was, you know, doing whatever autopsy we could do. I mean, there wasn't much left. A lot of the people who came in, you know, it was just literally just like hunks of meat. That's how hot it got. The people that were actually on the plane, we literally just had to do, it was just straight DNA on them. But the people who were in the Pentagon that had concrete and stuff like that fall on them they end up drowning from the sprinkler system it was a little bit easier for them i mean we kind of put their faces back together and stuff like that uh, i remember all the smells i remember there was one lady she was about seven months pregnant and i had to do her autopsy and she actually kind of looked like my mom so that was that was probably the toughest one i did and having to cut the baby out that was definitely probably the toughest one i've, I've ever done oh my god that is horrific. Oh my God. Had you ever seen a dead person before? But before that, no. No, I was coming right out of high school. So I came right out of high school, right into the military, right into that. So it was interesting. I've been around death. My best friend had died in high school. He had gotten into a car accident and got pinned, pinned in the car. I mean, I wasn't there to see it. Did he have an open casket? No. That would be hard to see him that way. Yeah. Oh. I don't know how you did that. During that time when everything was going on, you learn to kind of detach yourself from emotions. I mean, when we were done, yeah, you know, all the emotions came out, but while we're there in that moment, you know, we're just, we've got work to do. I'm working with the top pathologists in the world. They're all coming in, and, you know, you got the CIA there, the FBI and stuff like that. So working with those guys, you know, I, I had a man up, you know, I didn't have a choice and I was literally the youngest person there. I don't have time to, rely on my age or anything like that. I got to man up, you know, I got to be responsible and I got to handle business right now. Did you cry or puke? No, I didn't puke. I mean, I, I cried, of course, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't puke or anything like that. Yeah, that whole visual of like the maggots or the baby. I mean, I'm a mom of four. That's really hard for me to hear. I cannot imagine seeing a dead baby. Yeah, it was, uh, it was tough. That, that was tough. And now you're a father. Me too, yeah. Do you still remember that? Yeah, I remember her face. I mean, she looked like my mom, you know, and uh, half her face was gone. I was tough trying to reconstruct that and having to cut the baby out. The weird thing is the baby was, was fine. It just wasn't alive. Well, at least it's a peaceful way to go. Yeah, I think a lot of the people, they don't realize a lot of people drown. They were pinned under debris and stuff like that. And then, you know, it was just under maybe two, three inches of water from the sprinkler systems, but it, you know, it drowned a lot of people. So their faces swelled up and stuff like that. You know, the stuff that comes along with drowning. Wow. And that's a lot to see at once. Yeah. And it was constant, you know, for about a week, it was constant. And then what happened? 
we prepared the bodies, identified who we could, and got the remains out to the families and did our best to, to contact the families. I mean, they, they pretty much shut down all communications in D.C. when that happened. It was hard to communicate with people. I know my family was worried because at the time they were in Alaska, so they couldn't get in touch with me. The last that they had heard from me, we were in class the day before, and I told them, I was like, hey, you know, I'm going to go visit some friends in the Pentagon. They were like, okay, cool. You know, I was like, I'll call you guys when I get back. And then, you know, it happened. I was working at Jerry Springer during 9-11. I remember I had some guests coming in that day, and they called to tell me that all planes were grounded. I totally thought they were joking because guests cancel all the time. Then they told me to turn on the TV, and I saw the second plane hit. There was a lot going on in, in D.C. during that time. Oh my God, that is wild. I would love to know about your time in Alaska too. That's unique. I'm second generation Air Force. I was born here in San Antonio, Texas. From here, we went to Spain. We lived in Spain for a couple of years in Madrid. And then from Spain, we went to Japan. I went to elementary and middle school in Japan, which I loved it. I mean, I love Japan, you know, to this day. It's a beautiful country. We went from Japan to Alaska. That's where I went to high school at. And, you know, it's nice. You know, and of course, people go with all the rumors and stuff. They're like, oh, well, you know, you know, live in the igloo. They ask, you know, the most ridiculous questions. And I'm like, really? No, I didn't live in the igloo. I lived in the house. But yes, there are moose and stuff that do walk around your front yard. They chase you, all kinds of stuff. And yes, it's 24-hour daylight during the summertime. And it gets dark during the wintertime, you know, but. Other than that, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. What do you remember about Japan? A lot. I remember, you know, going to different festivals and stuff like that. Believe it or not, the part of Japan where we lived at is called Misawa, so it's up north. And it actually snowed more there than it did in Alaska. And I remember going out to the snow, and the snow's like at the top of the, the roof and stuff like that. And I remember walking to school and... You know, all kinds of stuff. I know some, uh, I'm a lot larger than, you know, a lot of Japanese uh, people. They're kind of short in stature. So first being black and then, you know, being larger than a lot of people there. It's interesting, but, you know, I enjoyed it. I, I loved it. You told me there's some problems in Austin. Yeah, man. I, I don't know what's going on in Austin. I hate Austin. I really do. I mean, there's so many people that came from California. It's pretty much California Junior. They're running from the issues in California and bringing it here. Austin is stupid. That shouldn't even be the capital of this state. What are your thoughts on BLM? Oh, God. That nonsense, man. Sometimes I wish I wasn't a nice guy because it'd be so easy to take advantage of black people and these white liberals. I can literally probably rule a couple states because these people are so gullible and so, so stupid out here. They watch too much TV. You know, like one of my favorite shows and one of my wife's favorite shows is Chicago PD. So we watch that show, and of course, every time there's always that one criminal, you know, he shoots at the cops 20 times, and then puts his gun down and, and takes off running, and then the cop puts his gun down so they can have an MMA fight. You know, he gets beat up, both of them beat each other up, and then all of a sudden he gets arrested. That's not how life works. People seem to think that. They, they oh, well, the cop didn't have to shoot him. He didn't have to do this. Yes, he did. You shoot that cop, you're going to get shot at back. It's going to happen. You're going to lose your life. You know, you have groups like BLM and, you know, Antifa and stuff because they're, they're the same people. They get their money from the same place and they're, they're coming out saying Black Lives Matter, but only the Black Lives who were killed by white police officers that are videotaped. They don't care about Black Lives because 
what, 700 people have died there in Chicago. Most of them are black. They don't say nothing about it. They're not out there riding in those neighborhoods. I mean, the one time they went to the neighborhood on the south side, the only time they went out there is when that dude got shot and killed by the police. But there were people who were shot and killed by other black people in that same neighborhood, and they were nowhere to be found. You know, and then you got groups like NFAC coming out of Atlanta or Georgia, wherever they're coming from, and they're walking around with guns shooting each other because they're stupid and they don't understand how to operate a weapon. They call themselves anti-Black Lives Matter, but yet say all the same stuff that Black Lives Matter does. So it's like, what are black people doing? What are y'all doing? None of y'all represent me. I don't know. None of y'all. I ain't fooling with none of y'all. I was like, y'all gonna find out real quick if y'all come this way what side I'm really on because I, I, ain't, I ain't messing with none of that stuff. I don't know why people can't see it. What about the whole All Lives Matter campaign? When people say All Lives Matter, it's not even a campaign. It's a sentiment. And people need to understand the difference. Because you can talk to anybody who says All Lives Matter. You'll go to them and say, hey, Black lives need to be mattering. And they'll say, yeah, 100% agree. So does everybody else's life. Everybody else's life matters too. All lives matter. Yeah, I agree. Black lives matter. Yeah, they do. But all lives matter. Yes, they do. You're right. But when you go, black, black lives matter, and no lives matter until black lives matter, then what kind of ridiculous black supremacy nonsense is that? It's stupid. Everybody's life matters. And me personally, I don't think all black lives matter because some of these people out here doing all this nonsense, we don't need them. I think that we need to have some late-term abortions on some of these people out here because it's, it's ridiculous. If they've already been proven not to be beneficial to society, then there's really no reason for them to be around. But yet you have Planned Parenthood going out, you know, killing millions of black babies every year and nobody says nothing about it. They don't blink. They're, they're okay with it. What about people that just want to be silent? You got to say something. You got to. We're in positions now where you have to say something. It doesn't even have to be a lot. You know, hold people accountable. That's it. And I understand we got the, the silent majority and a lot of us are kind of pissed off. It's a lot of nonsense, but, you know, it's been happening a long time. This is, this is eight years of buildup, you know, under that last clown president that we had. All this racial tension and stuff like that that's manufactured. It's just a buildup. Have you ever been afraid of a cop? No, never. I've run into some, some bad cops. You know, I've had guns drawn on me by cops. But I carry a gun, of course, you know, and I'm, I'm black and I'm tatted up. He pulls me over, you know, my window's a tenant. You know, he asked me for my insurance and my registration. You know, and I reach in the glove compartment, my gun falls out. So he's probably going to be a little scared. I mean, it's, I understand where he's coming from. But, yeah, as far as... You know, just getting pulled over. I mean, it's an inconvenience, and it's an inconvenience for anybody getting pulled over by police, but there's literally no reason to be scared. I'm more afraid of driving into the wrong neighborhood. I love how chill you are. You're like, ah, oh, my gun just <laughs> fell out. <laughs> I forgot I had it in there. So tell me about your real estate investing. I've been investing a little bit over two years, and I started doing it when I worked in corporate America. So I had a buddy of mine, he introduced me to wholesaling, which is basically flipping paperwork. Uh, that's all it is. So uh, he introduced me to that. And then I started learning like different avenues of investing and stuff like that and started creating deals and, you know, started actually making money and enjoying it. I was like, I'm 100% through the VA. I don't have to put up with this crap. And I'm making more money on the outside than I am coming here being stressed out. So 
Uh, it's been about two years now, and I was like, peace out, later, I'm out. Been enjoying it since then. But yeah, I've been been enjoying the, the investing. I'm trying to get involved in, in multifamily uh, properties and trying to expand out a little bit, but it's kind of hard with everything that's going on. Tell me about the first property you bought. First property I bought. It was a joint venture with a buddy of mine, and it was like a, maybe like a 1,300 square foot home. I think we put like, like 30,000 in it or something like that. We added a bathroom and, you know, it was a fix and flip. Didn't really know what we were doing. But I mean, it, it turned out nice because I got a buddy who owns a construction company. So it turned out nice. We bought it for like 70000 and we ended up selling it for one forty-five. So we made pretty good money on it. So would you buy a house that hadn't been lived in for five years if it was in a good neighborhood and it was a total fixer-upper? Yeah, why not? Where would you start with something like that? It depends. I mean, I would look at the comps of the neighborhood, you know, what our house is going for here. You know, what, what did other houses in the area look like? How can I differentiate my house from, you know, the other houses? How big is a the house? There's a lot of factors that go into it. That's interesting. Do you work with realtors too? I've worked with realtors, but a lot of people don't realize like they have, they have a bunch of fees and a lot of stuff that they, they like to do. Like realtors do. I have more information than realtors do. Honestly, I think I know more than realtors do because there's a lot of stuff that I can do that they can't. Like what? That's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> I see you've wanted a while. You've only been doing this for a couple of years. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty impressive. What would you put in your bunker? Uh, of course, my weapons, food. I think it'd be more of a nostalgia thing. Just something, something that'd be cool to be like, yeah, yeah, I got an underground bunker. I'm not going to use it, but yeah, you know, it's, it's cool though. It's cool because it's underground. It'd probably be like a man cave or something like that. Something ridiculous. I love it. How can people connect with you? I'm on, was it Parlor? Is this a new website? It's kind of like Twitter. So I'm, I'm Black Lion on, on Parlor, and then of course on, uh, on LinkedIn. And I'm on and off on Twitter because I keep getting kicked off of Twitter. Like every, like now I'm, I'm barred for like a week. I call Kamala Harris a, a slut, and I call Hillary Clinton a baby eater. And then they reported my profile for doing that. And the very first time I was on there, my very first tweet, I call LeBron a, a whiny bitch because he was backing up Kamala Harris. He was saying Kamala Harris was, was a great candidate and so was Joe Biden. And I called him a, a whiny bitch and said that he was stupid saying all that stuff and he needs to stick to basketball. And then he reported me and blocked me. So I can't talk to LeBron James no more. So I'm kind of I'm sad about because this is a lot of stupid stuff. Well, I want to find you on Twitter. So what's your name on there? I'm just Rena Rena. Well, you know what? I can't follow anybody. <laughs> so, Daddy, what did you think? It was a very nice interview from Earl. And, you know, what's funny is that Earl is a name used in some countries, like in England, where it's like nobility, an Earl. And the type of growing up experiences that Earl has had, he's, he's really got it on the ball. But of course, he's a little bit unfiltered, a little bit, where he does express himself where uh, he's got himself in a little trouble. But the truth of the matter is, is that his experiences at a young age uh, has given him a lot of depth for really understanding and making the right choices and being able to siphon out all the bullshit around him because he's lived in, he's lived in Japan. He's lived in Alaska. 
He's lived uh, in Spain. So he's lived in Europe. He's lived in Asia. He's lived in the Americas. So he has a lot of real tremendous experiences. Decided to join the service. And where does he end up? He ends up in 2001 at 9-11 with the uh, attack on the, on the Pentagon, where he's involved in doing the autopsies and the DNA analysis. He was thrusted into a very responsible role of disaster. And when you have to learn and overcome disaster, it makes you either a stronger person, a more insightful person, or it can destroy you. He chose to step up and have it become a focal point in his life of really understanding life's uncertainties and the disasters that can occur and to try to see if he can make a difference and not be part of all the bullshit in the world, but try to get down to reality. You're doing the same thing where you're using your experiences and your know-how to be able to maybe make a difference, to be able to add voices of people that have wonderful perspectives on life through living life. The Better Call Daddy Show is now proudly sponsored by Sadie Simper Designs. Listen, I had Sadie make some custom animated gifts for this podcast, and they were fantastic. Animated gifts are a great way to make Instagram stories more interesting, and they can also be used in place of your logo to make your emails more dynamic. Sadie creates custom branding. She doesn't just take a logo based off of nothing. She helps you take time to build your brand's identity, and she creates a brand suite that is truly tailored to you. Have you seen my Megawatts Productions logo? She made that. Visit sadiesimperdesigns.com to see portfolio and brand packages. For 20% off your custom gift or brand suite, email sadiesimperdesigns at gmail.com and use the subject line, call daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah.